Hello and welcome to the Raw Fork Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marina Buxov, and I'm a functional medicine pharmacist in New York, as well as an integrative health coach and clinical herbalist. I'm pleased to go into season three of this podcast and continue to bring on other holistic-minded pharmacists and healthcare professionals to the show. I'm constantly inspired by my guests and their stories and love sharing their points of view with you all. Please enjoy the show. Hi, I have such a treat in store for you today with some juicy topics that we cover as I sit down to have a virtual tete-a-tete. I'm pleased to introduce to you Dr. Emily Culpa. She's a licensed pharmacist in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who believes in an integrative approach to health and supports the use of all evidence-based modalities. Currently, she consults in the psychedelic industry as a director of medical screening and has gained extensive knowledge in the use of psilocybin. Prior to consulting in the psychedelic industry, she worked as a clinical pharmacist at a managed care organization where she specialized in medication therapy management. To learn more about psychedelic medicine, you can check out her website and subscribe at dremilyculpa.com. Without further ado, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning, and welcome to Raw Pork Podcast. I have with me today an esteemed guest, Dr. Emily Culpa. She is a pharmacist and a specialist in psychedelic medicine. So welcome to the show, Dr. Emily. Hi, Marina. Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat with you this morning. I have so many questions bubbling up. So first of all, uh, why don't you in your own words introduce yourself to the listeners, maybe say a few words about where you grew up and uh, why you chose pharmacy as your profession? Yeah, um, so I'm born and raised in a suburb outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's where I'm located today. And I got into pharmacy, it was in high school. It was kind of like a, a really good career choice back in the, I think around like 2004, 2005. Um, I did a job shadow actually at Walgreens. Um, and I thought, oh, this is really cool. And so I've, I've spent a long time in pharmacy. Um, I started working as a pharmacy tech my senior year of high school. So that kind of started, um, yeah, my path into my pharmacy career. And uh, one of the, my pharmacy manager at the time was, yeah, she was a woman. So that was really awesome to see so many women in the pharmacy industry. And, you know, they said, hey, it's a really great career too, because you can do part-time. There's a lot of part-time opportunities, especially if you want to have a family and, um, you know, it's pretty secure. There's a lot of job opportunities and whatnot. Um, so that kind of started me on my pathway. Um, and yeah, so I have a, a bachelor's of science in biology from the university of Wisconsin, Madison. And then I did my doctor of pharmacy at Concordia university here in Wisconsin. And, uh, I spent a lot of time in retail and then, Really, I think my appy rotations kind of opened up my eyes to a lot of different things, especially like integrative medicine, functional medicine. Um, and after graduation, my last appy rotation was at a managed care organization. So someone had recommended, hey, you should check this out. It's something completely different than retail, hospital. Um, and so I created a job for myself after that rotation, like, hey, I could really do this for you. And so 
that's where I started my clinical pharmacist position once I got my license uh, right out of pharmacy school. Oh, so. wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can definitely draw a lot of parallels to myself. I was also recommended the profession because of the same reasons that you mentioned. And, you know, it has panned out to, um, to be true for all of those reasons. So I really appreciate that those aspects of it. Um, so how did you manage to get a clinical position right out of pharmacy school? Yeah, so I, um, yeah, I feel like the appies were really important. I know a lot of people at my school just kind of, I know they kind of like let the match or whatever happen and didn't really like create their own. And what was cool at my school, we were a little bit newer, but you could go and um, like find anywhere and do a rotation like wherever you wanted. Oh, wow. So yeah, so I set mine up. So I ended up doing um, a rotation at a pharmacy it was an independent pharmacy. Both of the pharmacists also had their clinical nutritionist like certification. So I learned a lot from them. I did 12 week rotation out in Hawaii at an independent pharmacy where they had a naturopath on staff and I learned about CBD. And so that was a really awesome experience. And then my last one was the managed care rotation. Um, and we focused a lot on medication therapy management. We did a lot of comprehensive you know, medication reviews um, with, the, with managed care organizations, you know, they're focused on the star ratings and adherence programs. And so it was completely different. It was in an office, uh, but you still have patient contact. You're doing it just over the phone. Uh, and then I kind of just saw that they had a need that they needed to kind of meet their numbers and was like, hey, I could do a grad pharmacist internship if you want. And then they're like, okay, yeah, that would be helpful until we get another pharmacist. And then once I did that and got licensed, I was like, hey, I can just be if you need this fourth quarter push clinical pharmacist, you know, that's something I'm open to. And so just kind of throwing out ideas, creating positions and they're like, you know, they saw what I can do and, and hired me on. So yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> wow. That's really great that you were able to create those positions for you. Like you mentioned that your school encouraged that, which is really admirable. And then you went ahead and ran with it and did your own thing, no matter where you ended up. Yeah. yeah, I really like that. Um, so what did that entail, like that kind of clinical role? And like, what did that teach you? And how did you then transition into what you're now passionate about? Yeah, so on my appy rotations, I was really introduced to a lot of different things like drug induced nutrient depletion, um, you know, things I didn't you know, I feel like we didn't learn about in school or, it, you know, we, we didn't learn a lot about it and, you know, about adaptogens, herbs, um, alternative healing modalities, you know, working with a naturopathic doctor and just seeing all of the different things you can offer people. And then in my clinical role with the adherence program, you know, we have a lot of patients who have chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol. And when I talk to these patients, um, it really seemed like they needed more education about nutrition and preventative and lifestyle medicine. And as we all know, a lot of these diseases, most of them can be prevented, um, you know, by lifestyle changes, diet, exercise, all of that. And um, yeah, they, they weren't getting that education. It was more about, you know, making sure they took their medication, um, filling it on time, which, you know, medications have their time and place are important, but I started to see just how many medications people were on and, you know, reading about like deep prescribing and just how I feel like that's important with lifestyle medicine. And, and to me, I, I felt like that was the, 
a best way to help help patients. Um, however, I wasn't able to do that. I don't think a lot of people maybe put value on lifestyle, you know, education and lifestyle medicine because you can't see the benefits right away. You know, it's kind of like a long time thing. It's a you know, it's a lifestyle change. It's a commitment. So you don't see the money right away if you're a a health organization. Um, so, and then also, you know, I, I was looking around and we see the mental health crisis. So I'm, I'm always searching and doing like self-research on like what other options are there. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it brought me into psychedelics was I stumbled upon the research um, and I was really intrigued. And when you look at the data and the research, um, I think there's more research and data collected on psychedelics than there is on, on cannabis. So and if you look at the research and the data, you know, these molecules are, or compounds are pretty, pretty safe and well tolerated in a generally like healthy population. Um, and so I started doing some consulting work for this group at the University of Toronto. They've done a lot of microdosing, like observational microdosing research where they kind of send out surveys and have people self-report. I got involved with them because they wanted to do a phase two clinical trial, uh, psilocybin microdosing versus placebo, just just to kind of see if that would have any, you know, statistically significant effect on on mood. So that's that's how I started it, kind of like got into the psychedelic field after I read up on the research. I kind of got involved with them and helped them on their application to Health Canada. So I, I really had to self-learn. I didn't have any specialized training in psychedelics or in, in clinical trials. Um, it was all just, you know, kind of self-taught. You have to look at all of the things the FDA require, all the things Health Canada required. Um, and I just read as much as I could about psychedelics, all of the peer-reviewed journals, any clinical protocols I could get my hands on, all of the investigators' brochures, um, anecdotal reports too, because you know people have been using these substances for a long time, and so that's kind of where I really how I how I started, and then eventually I went to an international conference uh, in Berlin. So they had psychedelic researchers and advocates from all over the world come, and it was really cool to see people present all of the research that's going on all over the world on on psychedelics, and that's how I met. The, the company that I'm consulting for, for now. Wow. Wow. So many, so many interesting things to dissect there. Uh, so can you talk a little bit to why you, you feel that the mental health piece uh, in the public health um, spectrum is so important and why you were researching it in the first place and then what uh, you think about psychedelics and how they can benefit mental health? Yeah, I think um, it, definitely for personal reasons and also seeing everyone around me. So for me in undergrad and pharmacy school, I personally struggled with depression and anxiety. And, um, you know, I think to destigmatize it, you have to talk about it. And I haven't talked about it. But then, you know, I was feeling frustrated because I think when you go to the healthcare provider right away, here, take this SSRI here, like here's a pill, you know, take okay. this, nothing about meditation, not really talk therapy, CBT. Like I wasn't any offered any of that when I, when I went to go check in with my primary health care provider, it was like, here you go, here's a pill, try that out. But you know, what if that doesn't work? Um, and then, you know, once I started talking about it, I kind of found out that everyone else around me is struggling with the same things and 
also are on like antidepressants and, you know, you would never think unless you, you know, talk about it. And then just seeing all of the patients that came through and how they were on it had really bad side effects. Maybe it wasn't necessarily working for them. So I'm like, wow, like what is going on here? You know, and um, a lot of it too, like a lot of healthcare professionals, a lot of other pharmacists struggle with, with the same thing. So I'm, I think, you know, learning about the integrative uh, approach through my appies, I'm like, you know, there's gotta be, there's gotta be something else. There's gotta be some other way. And so, yeah, that's how I, I kind of ran into the psychedelic research that was going on. And I think, I think it's so important because like how they work, the mechanism of action is completely different from antidepressants. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, it's like, I think a lot of people, there's a stigma on psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just because, you know, people are afraid of what they don't know. And I think we were kind of fed this story that, you know, because they're illegal, that they're bad. And I mean, that's what I believed, you know, in pharmacy school, it's like people get addicted to these drugs and they kind of just categorize psychedelics along with heroin, cocaine and, and everything else, you know. Um, but if you look at the... was in that group a short while ago. What was that? Cannabis was also in that stigmatized group. Exactly. Yes. And look at it now. It's like the number one talked about, you know, heal all remedy. Now everybody, you know, and their mom and their grandma is using it. And it's, you know, almost reached that legal status nationally. Yeah. So, and I mean, these, these compounds have been used for, you know, a long time and like traditional (laughs) healers use them and, so I think it's, yeah, it's a really important step. I think this is like a reemergence. I think in the last maybe 20 years, there's been a lot of research done. And I think we just really need to look at the data and the, the research behind it. And we'll see that if you look at the data and the research behind it, they seem actually to have like less risks than things like alcohol and tobacco. So. And some um, depressants. Exactly. And some <laughs> antidepressants. And I didn't even know this, but at the conference, Um, there is a manufacturer who's manufacturing GMP psilocybin. So that's like the compound from the magic mushrooms. And I I saw them present at this conference and I didn't even know this, but there is a report called the star D report. And so they looked at like SSRI treatment and they found that for people who had depression, who were put on SSRI, like one third of them, you know, went into remission, but the rest of them then did not. And so when they followed up, they found that in some people and those like two thirds and the other set of people that being on these antidepressant medications actually led to chronic depression. Like it made it worse for them than if they would have never been on it in the first place. So it was interesting to see this data and some of this research kind of come out. So yeah, it's very odd when you think about like that the number one warning for SSRIs and other depressants is an increased risk of suicide. So yes. it's very much counterintuitive because exactly what you're trying to prevent is the number one dangerous side effect that you need to be wary of and be very cautious when starting an antidepressant and also when tapering on and off different doses or coming off it or switching, you have to be really careful in in the dosing you know structure and schedule 
And I think um, a lot of people don't realize that this is also a commitment of sorts. Like this is, you're dealing with your neurotransmitters. So you can't just start something and then quit it cold turkey. Like this is a big commitment that if you're going to go on it, you have to stay on it, first of all, for four to six weeks to see if it's even effective because your mm -hmm. body has to normalize and balance itself out and get used to this new level of serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine and whatever other things are also triggered. And our limited view and knowledge and studies of, the, of our human biology is just that it's limited. We can't see everything. So theoretically, while we think we know what we're doing and we've designed amazing drugs to help us with everything, you know, under the rainbow. <laughs> but um, in reality, your body's always trying to bring itself back to homeostasis. It's always yeah. trying to balance itself. So once you put something exogenous in, there's unpredictable things that are going to go on while your body's trying to metabolize it and assimilate it and then get back to balance because it's always communicating back to itself and trying to figure out, okay, let's raise this, let's decrease this because we need to be centered. Yep. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I feel like we act like we know so much. Um, and then when you look at some of the me mechanism of actions of some of the drugs, it's like, well, it's unknown. Right. You know, like that's, yeah. that's a thing. It's unknown, but you know, we will, it works in this population and that population. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And, and with psychedelics, if you just look at it like another medicine, you know, so far the research is showing improvements in, you know, people with depression and anxiety and they're researching it for things like addiction. Um, you know, they're researching things like MDMA for trauma and, and PTSD. And so I think, what they're thinking. And I think they don't even really know exactly how it works. I mean, we know it hits the 5-HT2A uh, receptor in the brain. That's like the main uh, pathway, but then it also induces, they also induce like neuroplasticity, which means that it kind of can rewire your, your brain and your, your neurons can make new connections, um, you know, and kind of reorganize the pattern in your brain. And so they're thinking, is it, you know, is it due to that? Can you now kind of have these new pathways and think about your life in a different way, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or is it the people sometimes get these mystical types of experiences, you know, is it, is it from the experience that you, you have when you take a psychedelic that kind of changes you, you know, um, which can help improve, you know, your mood, depression, anxiety, your overall outlook on life. So yeah, from my understanding, it has a lot to do with dopamine also. And we know like the more dopamine a person has, the more they're likely to experience hallucinations. And it's also the feel good effect. And it could also cause things like addiction and tolerance and things like that. But, um, but if somebody just physiologically has too much dopamine, often they can get diagnosed with schizophrenia and other psych psychotic type of disorders mm -hmm. but there's always like that delicate balance of raising it too much and then if there's too little then you can get something like parkinson's so how how does the psychedelic medicine work in your understanding exactly from your research um and and can you also explain the microdosing versus traditional using of psychedelic plants yeah, so I think from my understanding, um, and again, we categorize all of these things as psychedelics. So 
I think when I talk about psychedelics, I'm hitting the traditional things like, I mean, psilocybin, uh, LSD, and I guess I'll categorize like MDMA. It's not really a psychedelic, but it's kind of, you know, being studied Mm -hmm. for PTSD and trauma. And so like for the classic psychedelics, I think it's mainly through the serotonin receptors in the brain. And then those kind of, you know, can affect things like, yeah, dopamine and other, you know, neurotransmitters in the brain. And then also the neuroplasticity, you know, so these compounds can create a change, changes in the brain too, to, I think it kind of helps when you look at some of the, the research, it leads to people feeling more open. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think maybe they're more open, open to change. So, but that's like the primary mechanism of action is through the serotonin receptors, 5-HT2A. And then it hits a couple of other ones, depending on if it's, you know, LSD or psilocybin or, you know, what specific compound it is. Um, and so with the microdosing, I feel like there hasn't been a lot of a research done around the microdosing. It's more an- anecdotal reports of people taking, um, it's like a very, very small dose of the psychedelic. So let's say like a, a high dose of psychedelic, something that they would use in the clinical trials, like a Johns Hopkins or Imperial, the Imperial College of London would be, I think for like pure psilocybin, maybe 25 milligrams they're using. And so a microdose would be something like one to three uh, like milligrams. So maybe like one tenth to one twentieth of like a typical dose. And so for the microdosing, people report like improved mood. They also report improved concentration, attention, um, an increase in creativity. However, some other people also report things like anxiety, um, that they weren't able to like function normally. You've got to be careful because, you know, with the microdose, you want to, you want to take it so that you, you know, would improve like your mood and your creativity, but not alter your ability to function. Mm-hmm. So if you take too high of a dose because, you know, it's a psychedelic, you can, you know, hallucinate and it kind of changes your perceptual experience. If you take too high of a dose, you're going to kind of trend towards that way. So I think most people use microdosing more for like well-being, improved mood, but there's not a lot of evidence right now. There's no, like, you know, a, a randomized controlled trial is the gold standard and there hasn't been anything like that to show to show that you know statistically significant that this stuff is statistically significant to improve mood or any of these other measures mm-hmm. so what would be the difference in the standard dosing versus microdosing as to how frequently or how often you would have to take this medicine to see an overall improvement like is it also treating the symptoms or is this treating the cause of, let's say, depression? Yeah, I think with microdosing, there's no studies, I guess, to show that it's, you know, correlated with treating depression. I think a lot of the studies are showing that people self-report that it improves their mood, improves their attention and creativity. I think there are a couple of different dosing protocols um, you know, like there's like Fadiman's dosing protocol. So you take it for a couple days, then you go off for a day and you kind of can repeat it. I think, you know, people do it for a couple weeks, maybe for a month. It all depends. Everybody kind of does 
you know, can do a different microdosing protocol. Um, but again, I don't think everybody's, you know, a good candidate for microdosing or for the full dose. So that's why harm reduction is really important. That's why we have a whole screening process to make sure, you know, the right people who go to retreat or, you know, in the, the studies are getting a screened appropriately. And then, you know, preparation for a high dose is really important. And then integration is really important. So I think for, yeah, for the microdosing, it's like a small dose that you would take more often. And for the high dose, it's, um, you know, I think you would go in for a session, they would prep you, and then you would have, you know, the session with the psilocybin or, yeah, with the psilocybin. And then the next day they would do like an integration session. Um, and so I think for that, we, they haven't really, I think found what, you know, like how often you would have to do a high dose, you know, um, would you do it, you know, um, sometimes they would do like a moderate dose and then a couple of days later, a high dose. And then after that, we don't know, would, would somebody need to come back in three months, in six months, you know, when would they need another dose of it? And that hasn't, that hasn't really been studied. Yeah. That's a, always a really good question because you know, if you're taking something therapeutically, you definitely want to know how frequently to aim for the next dose and would the effect wear off over time? How long does the effect last? And, um, you know, how, how often to, to follow up with the patient to, to see if they're still getting the benefit from the previous dose or if, is this something that you have to take consistently over some time and then get off completely or is this something you might have to do every once in a while to just upkeep the effects so i always like to kind of figure that out um because yeah. i think you know i work a lot with plants and herbs and how i think about it is well we need to eat plants to live right like we're not just going to eat one day and then for the rest of our lives we're not going to need to eat we always need to eat because we always need to have this um, fiber, all the macronutrients, all the micronutrients for our bodily functions. And so we always kind of need to replenish and then metabolize them and, you know, get them out of the system, take what we need and discard the rest, right? So with plants, what I tell uh, my clients is the same kind of thing that um, sometimes you would have to take it for a short while or a little longer while and then eventually you you would be able to function without the plants and the plants will kind of just help um, process whatever like blockage or whatever we're working on and then we won't need to do it or sometimes we would need to follow up once in a while and do a similar protocol or maybe do um, a smaller version of that protocol to kind of just like maintain. So like the first uh, few sessions are usually more intense and you might have like a more complex protocol with plant medicine. And then after, after that, you just kind of need to do, do some maintenance and check in with yourself to see, if, you know, how you're feeling. If, if um, you're feeling fine without plant support, great. But sometimes you just need to turn into like some, some more nutrients, some more superfoods and some more plants. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, I also think it's in, it's an individualized approach too, right? Or, or at least I think so, because everybody's different. And so, I mean, the, the research has shown after one to two sessions, that psilocybin for depression, the effects can last up to six months. 
but of course that's not true for every single one of their participants. So, you know, some of them, the effects wore off earlier, some of them, it was more prolonged. And also, you know, like everything else, psychedelics, it's a tool, you know, it's, it's not a magic, like cure. Um, it's not a magic fix, you know, what we're all looking for. So I think with psychedelics, every day you still have to put in the work if you want to heal. You know, you need to exercise, you need to do some movement, you need to eat healthy, cut out processed food, the sugar, you know, do some meditation, have some time that you're sitting in stillness, kind of just, you know, reflecting um, and journaling. That, and those are things that I, I do every day to help. So I got to get some movement in. I try to eat healthy, you know, a plant-based diet. I do uh, low carb. I try to stay away from sugar, even though I really love sugar. So that's hard to challenge, but I just feel so much better when I do that. Um, I try to meditate for a little bit every day or just kind of sitting in stillness and in the nature, if I can get outside and journaling. And so all of that stuff kind of helps me. I feel like it's preventative. It's stuff I need to do every day to you know, keep my mental health in a, to keep my mental headspace, you know, in a good place. So I think with the psychedelics, you know, yeah, these are amazing medicines, but we also have to realize that every day you still have to put into the work. And I think the psychedelics can hopefully catalyze that change to kind of inspire you to make the changes, you know, in, in your life that you need to make to live, to live a, you know, a healthy and a fulfilled life. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree that it's, it's not just that magic, you know, solution, which is what pharmaceutical medicine is all about. It's, you know, making it easy for somebody to get access to feeling better with a pill, you know, you just take a pill and you'll feel better and you won't have the pain or the worry or the anxiety anymore. I think it's much harder to actually look inside and see why are you feeling this way and address, you know, past trauma or childhood, a lot of the things that we, you know, as adults suffer with is some kind of subconscious or repressed stuff that we haven't dealt with from childhood. And so, you know, to just sit down and address all of that and hopefully have some guided professional and um, talk therapy along with that. And then just, um, really look in and see what would make you happy and kind of just, just um, tune into yourself because health is not just the absence of disease, right? Health mm -hmm. is what would make you feel joyful and what would make you thrive in your life. And, you know, the way we are living now in offices and four walls is not really <clears throat> how we co-evolved to live with nature. So what you're talking about, you know, spending time outdoors and breathing and journaling and slowing down, like we never lived in this fast paced environment of just electronics everywhere and all these messages coming into us so the act of just slowing down and getting in touch with our physical body by movement and exercise and feeding ourselves with proper nutrients that aren't hyper processed and you know all these artificial sugars that act like hidden um addictive substances that also hit your dopamine reward center and have you, you know, come back for more with all these inflammatory processes that it causes. And so just kind of slowing down and getting back to basics, <laughs> you know, having our basic movement and then looking mm -hmm. inward to see if there's some, something from the past that we need to resolve and what we would like to see in our future and how we can actually merge that ideal self with who we are right now. 
because a lot of times we just follow like what the status quo is and we don't really recognize that it's out of sync with what we as a person, as an individual actually want out of life. Yeah, I completely agree with that. You know, I feel like, yeah, as a society, our productivity is increased. Yeah, you have text messages, notifications, all of these things kind of, you know, bind for your attention and um, trying to keep up with, you know, yeah, career goals and all of this. And yeah, for me, I have to every, every now and then kind of come back and focus on like, what really matters to me? What do I really want out of my life? You know, when you're working, you're trading, you know, your time for money. And so for me, I, I really want to do meaningful work. And that's why I made the transition from the managed care organization over to psychedelics, because as much as I loved talking to patients one-on-one, you know, and working with them through that, I just felt like with psychedelics, um, you know, I have a personal connection. I, and I feel like this could really make a big impact in the future on, you know, for people who have mental health issues. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I feel like I'm doing something that's, that's meaningful. I enjoy it. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's other a piece, a piece of the puzzle is, you know, meaningful work. Do you find meaning and, and purpose in what you do? Absolutely. A lot of us, I think, trade in our time for money, which can then buy us anything that we want. And that's what we tell ourselves. But if at the end of the day, you're not feeling joy and you're not feeling rewarded for your job and you feel like you're not making a difference and your, your work doesn't matter, I think that's a very um, deep wound that a lot of us are carrying around and don't realize it because we think that you know, money will be the answer to, to our happiness. But in reality, um, I think meaning is, is the real answer. Like, bringing meaning into the world and to serving others and which will in turn serve you and allow you to feel um, worthy and, you know, meant to be here and do the work that you're doing. Yeah. Yes. I like that meaning. Um, I also think relationships, you know, with my friends, colleagues, with my partner, you know, and your and family and, and life experiences. So one thing that I, it always kind of boggles my mind is I, I love to travel and I really started traveling after I graduated from pharmacy school. It was something I wanted to do. Um, as I, I took a trip to France when I was 16, but then I hadn't been back to, to Europe since. And so I told myself before I took the clinical position after graduation that I took a month and I, I traveled to Europe and people looked at me like, oh, I wish I could do that. I wish I had the money. And I'm like, I I think it's priorities because a lot of people, you know, graduate and they buy a new car. I've had my car for the past like 11 years. I I kind of live a a minimalistic lifestyle because to me, like traveling and having these experiences, you know, meeting new people, trying new foods, that to me, I mean, yeah, that, that's what I like to do. It's one of my passions. and, And I feel like people, people can do it. It's, you know, do you really want to do it? Is that one of your, your priorities? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good point. It's, we always have these excuses at the get go. And like, we sometimes can't help but be envious or jealous of somebody else's lifestyle. But if we just prioritize the same things and move our schedules around, or at least not be afraid to ask for it, 
like I'm going to bring you as an example, you know, you wanted the clinical pharmacist position and you wanted um, to actually run or help consult somebody that's doing a clinical trial and without any prior experience, you just asked and you said, you know, here's what I can do. I'll study the rest and, you know, take me for this position. And you created those opportunities for yourself. So a lot of the times, like, if we don't ask, we will never receive. So make it a priority for yourself and say to yourself or journal it, you know, out, out on some paper and figure out that, okay, this is what I want. Unless you kind of envision that or put that out into the universe, then how will it ever happen if, if you don't like envision it first? So, and after that, you can actually make moves. You can't just like wait for the universe to give it to you. You actually make moves and look for either an opportunity or ask around if that opportunity exists or ask your boss if you can work remotely at least part of the week or um, do like different hours. I mean, right now we're all having to work remote. So I think right now, hopefully after this whole pandemic is over, we will realize how much work we can do remotely. And this will open us up to actually free our time to whatever other desires and priorities we may foresee for ourselves. So um, even though our world is very complex and has a lot of stressors, we can work around it and we can ask for what we want and, um, you know, say no to things that we don't want. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. I mean, you never know unless you ask and nobody knows what you want. So, you know, you need to make it clear to the people who can help you achieve those things. And I think generally most people want to be helpful. You know, you feel good when you, you help people. So, yeah, I think asking around is, is great advice. Yeah, so I also want to um, follow up on what your role is currently at your company and how you found that role. I think it's a um, Netherlands company, right? Yeah, so the company is based out of the Netherlands. And so um, in the Netherlands, psilocybin truffles are legal there. And so you can walk into something called the smart shop and you can just buy like a box of truffles for like similar to like a cannabis dispensary i i would imagine um yeah i guess if it was like recreational cannabis yeah and in the netherlands too cannabis is uh recreationally legalized so you can just walk in and buy yeah like a pre-rolled joint or you know you can buy cannabis and you can actually go and they have places where you like cafes they call them coffee shops and you can just go in there and you know, smoke your cannabis. Um, so yeah, and then they also have the smart shops, which, which has the truffles. And that's like the, so it's not the mushroom, but it's the part of it that's like underneath the ground. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Um, and so they have a retreat where they do legal psilocybin, you know, like a ceremony at, at these retreats. And it's mostly focused on healthy people who come for like an increased, you know, like well-being and to kind of work on themselves. So a lot of people come because maybe, I don't know, there's a period in their life or they want to make a career transition or some insight. And uh, that's something that psychedelics can offer for people. So what I do there um, is I help with the screening process because like I said before, it's not, it's not a good candidate for everyone. So you have to look at stuff 
like, you know, cardiovascular risk, medications, you know, the mental health, family history. So there's a couple of things you need to evaluate to make sure they're, you know, a safe candidate to come. And with all the, the new research and the FDA has given, um, I think they fast-tracked, uh, gave them designated drug, drug status to two companies in the U.S., one for MDMA and one for uh, psilocybin to kind of get these, you know, approved for depression and anxiety. So we want to do the screening to be careful of who we, who they allow to come to the retreat because, um, you know, we don't want to, like, take steps back forward in this psychedelic movement at all. So they're pretty careful and, you know, do a thorough screening. And so I help kind of oversee that, help kind of design some of the screening questions, work on protocols and anything else that, you know, I can do as a pharmacist for them to, it, it's mostly to help ensure like the safety of people who, who come. So all the data that you collect, is it considered post-marketing data or is this something that you're doing like preclinical or clinical trial wise? Is this like, totally legal there and then you're just like doing surveillance or is this something for it to get uh, another indication let's say so the company in the netherlands it's just a legal psilocybin retreat center so that's all that is but the the stuff i was doing with clinical trials and data collection was with the university of toronto in canada so it's a it's kind of two separate things okay yeah so um, the Toronto studies were then um, clinical studies. It wasn't post-marketing surveillance. No, no, it was not post-marketing surveillance because none of it, uh, psilocybin uh, and MDMA hasn't been approved yet. And However, why, did you have to, yeah, why did you have to also work with the FDA even though the studies were in Canada? Oh, they were in Canada. A lot of the... Um, I feel like a lot of what Health Canada does is they kind of look to the FDA. So I was just looking at what the requirements were for me to kind of read up, see what the requirements were, and just like compare that to Health Canada and, you know, use some of the same resources because they all follow um, like international guidelines. There's this international code of harmonization guidelines and good clinical practices that everybody in the world should follow for, for clinical trials. So reading up on all of that. Um, and yeah, the FDA kind of helped me do some of this stuff for Health Canada. Very nice. And so uh, when you mentioned some of the restrictions in the screening, um, you know, questions and the screening process that you go through currently, um, why would cardiovascular risk and what kind of family history and mental illness do you, do you, do you um, think would not be a good fit for this kind of uh, retreat center? Yeah, so if you look at all of the clinical trials, you can go on, um, you can go and kind of look them up online and you can look at the inclusion, exclusion criteria. Um, you know, if you have contacts, you can ask them for your protocols. And so when you look at psilocybin specifically, that's the main, that's the main one that I work with. Um, one of the main effect is on the cardiovascular system. So they saw in some of the trials that some of the side effects were like a transient increase in blood pressure and heart rate. And uh, also like reports of anxiety and fear were also reported with some of the trials. So that's why cardiovascular is something we look out for. 
So serious cardiovascular events, um, you know, and things like blood pressure and stuff. So you just kind of want to monitor that. Um, yeah, it all depends on how severe it is and, and what your condition is, if you would be a candidate or if it's something that we would just want to monitor. Right. Um, so in terms of, I don't know if you've studied ayahuasca, but that's like the traditional psychedelic plant brew of two or more plants. And one of them acts as an MAO inhibitor and the other one actually has the psychedelic properties. Um, so, you know, one of the big things is that tyramine containing foods should be avoided because of the MAO eye interaction with them and which could result in hypertensive crisis. So are any of those kind of uh, diet special requirements also recommended for psilocybin or is, is it just like come as you are? Yeah, for the psilocybin, I, I feel like it's, I would recommend, you know, I think for certain, it depends on what the supplements are. So it depends on how long the person's on them. I don't feel like there's any special diet, but I would say just to have a good preparation and a good mental space for a psychedelic experience, you'd want to abstain from, you know, things like alcohol, um, you know, nicotine, you probably want to prep your body for the, the experience. So is there any, of course, you don't want to be taking alcohol with, you know, psilocybin, um, but there's no special like dietary restrictions that, that I know of. Yeah, there's the whole like protocol with, with a month long dieta in, in, in the terms of drinking ayahuasca um, to just like also make your experience uh, as positive as possible and um, kind of clear your mind and body from different types of toxins and other things that can affect your neurotransmitters. Um, and so what, do you kind of have like a prep protocol for people, like once you accept them and what uh, would they expect usually for the psychedelic experience? Would you say a lot of them have visions or like what, what did you notice as a common thing? Um. I, I don't think I can go into specifics necessarily with um, what we do at, uh, over there in the Netherlands, um, but everyone I feel like has a different type of experience, you know, on a psilocybin. So some people, you know, the perceptual changes, so colors, some of them can have hallucinations. Some people have the mystical type experience where they... Um, I don't know, like meet with an entity or, or, you know, some kind of mystical type experience. Um, so I feel like it's, it's different for everyone. Some people are laughing, some people are crying and, uh, yeah, you never know what their experience is like, uh, unless they share it with you. And so what, in your opinion, would be the benefit of going to, let's say, a guided retreat center that you work for versus just going into the store where it's legal and buying a truffle? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, for, first of all, you want to make sure you're an appropriate candidate, you know, for psychedelic assisted therapy. And the preparation, I think, is really important uh, because I feel like if you're doing this, you really want to go in with intention mm -hmm. you want to be prepared for some of the things because another common thing is feeling like you're dying mm -hmm. and that's that can be pretty scary uh, you know so kind of want to explain that 
hey, these are some of the things that people experience. This is one of the things that you can experience. Some people experience anxiety uh, and with the preparation too, you kind of want to want to try to be as open as you can and lean into stuff instead of fight it. So that can maybe make for a challenging experience. So you really want to make sure you're prepared because yeah, these things, if, if you're not prepared for it, it could be quite scary. And I think that's what can lead to all of these people, you know, maybe having, they call it bad trips, mm-hmm. you know, when they just take it themselves without anybody kind of there without realizing, you know, what they're kind of getting into. So I think that's important. And I do think it's important to have somebody there who is uh, somebody that you trust, you know, in a safe space in case things do come up, you know, maybe someone can like hold your hand, be there for you, you know, just, just knowing that you have this like trusting uh, presence there. And then the integration is important too, because, you know, whatever happens, you want to make sense of your experience. And I think it's important to really take that and try to implement what you've learned from that. And most of it, I feel like is, I feel like people already kind of know what's there. It just, it like makes it more like clear mm-hmm. in maybe what you need to do. And so I think it's helpful to have either a therapist or some kind of wellness coach, somebody to help you make sense of it and, you know, guide you into integrating that experience yeah. so you can maintain the benefits. Absolutely. You know, all of these recreational self therapies that you mentioned like with cannabis or different types of mushrooms or even ayahuasca you know people can have bad trips if they're they're feeling unsafe or they're not in a supported environment because things can come up to the surface like you were saying and so ayahuasca traditionally is a ceremony you know it's a community of people that are all doing the same thing and they have this common intention which is what makes it so powerful and you have traditionally a shaman who guides everybody um, and, you know, assists people that may need help. So it's like you're all in there together. And I've, you know, I've definitely heard the benefit of, of having such a person who, um, who knows exactly what to do and how to help everybody in the ceremony. And so, um, you know, I think that's really, really important to have somebody that you can trust to be there. And definitely some, some trips can be, um, what, from what I hear, scary. And um, when you mentioned death, I definitely heard the term ego death a lot when you know, taking any kind of these kind of medicines. Um, and what it does is it basically dissolves the sense of you as a whole, but it connects you to everything else that's around you. And so it can be scary, but also in a way um, very opening, like you were saying, and beautiful. So there, there's a lot of uh, research um, that I would advise for anybody that's considering any of these um, types of medicines. So doing your own research and choosing a center or a retreat um, group or um, you know, just researching from other people that have done it and asking what their experience was like and which centers they would recommend rather than just doing it at home by yourself without any support. Yeah, I definitely would not recommend doing it, you know, alone by yourself, especially if it's your first time doing psychedelics. And yeah, I really, you know, I think people should go out and get educated about it if they're interested and you need to really research the quality of the retreats because there are a lot of ones kind of all over 
you know, the world where I think people are doing it where maybe it's not legal. Uh, they're not doing etiquette screenings. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, some people who may have been admitted to, you know, one retreat would have been denied at, you know, the one in the Netherlands retreat because uh, we're quite conservative. So, yeah, that's really important to make sure it's like reputable that, you know, word of mouth, if you've heard people that have gone there. Um, and yeah, you can look at like Johns Hopkins is, they just opened a whole center dedicated to psychedelic research. So they have a lot of information. MAPS does, uh, the Imperial College of London has done a lot of stuff. So I have a page on my website called Psychedelic Medicine and uh, I'm trying to list like reputable retreat centers there. Some of the top centers around the world that um, study psychedelics. So, and then I have a couple of articles that are peer reviewed, open, open access articles. Awesome. I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And I also want to ask you, you know, you mentioned LSD a couple of times. So in your opinion, why do you think that that kind of failed? You know, it was an experiment where we also, you know, in the mainstream pharmaceutical companies saw the benefit of these psychedelic entities and we decided to make a drug out of it and purify it. And so it was studied, but then everything was kind of abandoned ship because of like really bad side effects. So why do you think that happened? I think uh, the research that they were doing back then, they didn't have the same maybe like standards or regulations. So maybe they were doing some more risky studies. You know, it was just, I think it's a different standard now with the the clinical trials. And I think too, with the stigma, I mean, I do feel like these, these medicines open your mind, you know, in addition to helping maybe treat depression, anxiety, a trauma, I think they do kind of open your mind and make you question things and, and think about things. Uh, you know, think about what's really going on in life, what really matters to you. And so I don't know if maybe that was threatening to some uh, people, you know, I think there was the whole anti-war movement and all of that stuff going on. So there was a lot of, uh, I think, political things that just kind of led to, yeah, led to the to war on drugs. And I think that's another thing that you know, I think we need to stop the war on drugs and decriminalize these substances. Yeah, I think Portugal is the only country where all drugs are yes. legalized. So um, that would be interesting to compare like their mental health spectrum versus the, the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think the psilocybin is decriminalized now. Oakland, California, Denver, Colorado passed something. And now in Oregon, they are working on a psilocybin initiative. I think they're hoping to vote on some kind of legislation that in 2023 they would be able to offer psilocybin assisted therapy uh, in clinics to people so that's uh that's really exciting to see if they get that approved yeah wow this field is definitely super fascinating and i want to thank you for spending this time talking through all of these amazing things and I have like a ton more things I could ask you, but, but um, if you just have a couple more minutes, I have some last rapid fire questions for us. Uh, yeah, sure. Sounds good. Okay. Um, what is your number one advice 
for people to improve their quality of life right now? Right now, I think definitely movement, uh, meditation, and you know, periodic like reevaluation of what you want. Awesome. Uh, what is your advice for pharmacists or pharmacy students that are interested <clears throat> interested in thinking outside the box and pursuing um, non-traditional approaches and doing something new with pharmacy? Yeah, I, I think there's so many opportunities as a student. That's when you have your chance to explore all of these uh different niches in pharmacy. So I would recommend if you can set up your appies to include non-traditional rotations because that's where you really get exposed to see if it's something that you like. Networking is so important. I didn't appreciate that when I was in pharmacy school, but I realize now it's important to network, you know, sh job shadow someone, you know, at a non-traditional pharmacy or reach out to somebody if you're interested in clinical trials, you know, someone who's in regulatory affairs or uh, you know, medical science liaison, just reach out to them, talk to people. And uh, yeah, don't be afraid. Yeah, love that. Um, what is your favorite hobby or pastime? Uh, favorite hobby or pastime? It's not really a hobby, but I I, I really love traveling. I, I try to do it as, as much as I can. It's been hard now with the COVID, not being able to go anywhere. Uh, but it's one of my yeah, favorite things, just I don't know, taking a trip outside, up north, uh, abroad. Yeah. Awesome. And what is your favorite beverage to drink? Beverage. I, so I'm trying to stay away from caffeine. So my drink of choice is like a chai latte in the morning. So tea, I'm getting into teas. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. And lastly, can you tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about your work? Uh, yeah. If you want to get in touch with me, I, my website is dramaliculpa.com and you can contact me through there or subscribe if you want to get in touch. Awesome. So yeah, I'll link to, to that and the website page that you mentioned in the show notes. And um, thank you again for coming on. I had a blast talking about this fascinating topic with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It was fun. All right, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Raw Fork Podcast, and I truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you learned something new from it, I would really appreciate if you can give us a five-star rating and a sincere review so that more people can find it across the podcast platforms. To get in touch with me, please go on rawfork.com or email me directly at marina at rawfork.com. Take good care and I'll see you back here next week.